Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I got to talk to Reverend Dr. Randy Woodley. He is a farmer, activist, scholar, distinguished speaker, teacher, and wisdom keeper who addresses a variety of issues concerning American culture, including faith and spirituality, justice, race and diversity, regenerative farming, our relationship with the earth, and indigenous realities. In 2010, he graduated with a PhD in intercultural studies from Asbury Seminary. Dr. Woodley currently serves as Distinguished Professor of Faith and Culture at Portland Seminary. He was raised near Detroit, Michigan, and is a Cherokee descendant recognized by the United Ketua Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma. He co-hosts the Piecing It All Together podcast with Bo Sanders. Dr. Woodley and his wife, Edith, are co-sustainers of Elohe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Elohe Farm and Seeds, a regenerative teaching center and farm in Yamhill, Oregon. The Woodleys have been innovators and activists for over three decades. They have four grown children and six grandchildren. He has authored nine books, all of which we'll link to in today's show notes in case you want to grab a copy. In this conversation, we talk about how he came to know Jesus, Elohe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Elohe Farm and Seeds. We also talk about his books and what we can learn from indigenous wisdom. Let's listen. Dr. Woodley, I am just delighted to get to talk to you today. I've been reading your books, listening to some podcasts that you've done and the one that you host, and just really been looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Heidi. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I've really been looking forward to it. So I want to start out by giving people a little bit of an opportunity to get to know you. So if you could just tell me how you came to know Jesus or the Creator. Uh, yeah, well, um, I think maybe uh, the long story would take me all the way back to a church camp when I was 10 years old. And uh, we had a, uh, I had a native counselor. Um, I don't know his name, but his, uh, he went by the nickname of Cream Puff. And uh, he uh, basically invited me to meet Jesus as a 10 year old kid. And so I did, and that was meaningful. And then I strayed for a long time, uh, a couple years later as a teenager. At 19, um, I was uh, uh, basically uh, addicted to uh, meth and uh, uh, had a pretty raunchy lifestyle. And uh, under a number of circumstances, that's when I sort of walked down the aisle and uh, in the old-fashioned way. And I, I met Jesus and I prayed and, and I asked one thing. I said, if you can deliver me from this, these drugs, because I'd been addicted for over a year and I couldn't get out myself, then I will uh, serve you the rest of my life and I won't ever look back. And so, um, I sort of felt like a, a horse kicked me in the head and, uh, kind of got up from there. I was all just by myself in a room and, and I went, wow. And then I never had that desire to do drugs again. And I started trying to investigate, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And uh, yeah. that was at night, that was October 23rd, 1975. And, uh, you know, and here we are today. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. What have you learned about what it means to follow Jesus? 
I think uh, it's it's been a learning experience for sure. Um, it's not the same thing that I thought when I was 19 uh, as it is now. Um, I think uh, at the time, I I sort of like uh, had this uh, these people who were well intentioned, loving, uh, mentoring me, um, and uh, and they were just like just do what we do, right? And so what does that mean? Well, read the Bible and pray and come to church and tell other people about Jesus. And so, uh, so that's what I did. And eventually I became, uh, I, I answered a call to the ministry and I became what I would refer to as a flaming evangelist. And, uh, I was, uh, for years, uh, sort of in that mode for a number of years, but I always felt kind of weird, right? It was like, there was something about this process that wasn't right. And I, I hadn't developed um, the whole gospel, the holistic understanding of the gospel. And, and I also felt like that I was in a lot of ways objectifying people um, to become sort of the objects of my evangelistic pursuits. And I know, you know, um, people who follow Jesus have all kinds of ways of rationalizing that, but still, objectifying people is not what Jesus was about. And so it took me a while to sort of figure this out. And then at the same time, figuring out my own indigenous identity and what that meant um, in my pursuit of God. And uh, so I had a lot of things to work through. And uh, eventually I've, I think I've come to, you know, some real peace and understanding what's, uh, what it means to follow Jesus and, you know, I'm sure that's kind of what we'll talk about maybe the rest of this interview. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. You said you had to come to understand your indigenous identity as part of learning to follow Jesus. What was that experience like for you? Yeah. Well, so those, those well-meaning people who I love, who first mentored me, you know, like at the time I, I had a very, I would say radical understanding of uh, myself as a, a native person. And um, I was, you know, uh, had long hair and uh, Wharton braids sometimes. And I had, you know, Indian posters and American Indian movement stuff in my room and the newspapers and all that kind of stuff. And, and basically they told me, well, and this is, this is where sort of the dualism slipped in, if you will, this, uh, this idea of, you know, well, that's all of the flesh just do what we're doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Jesus actually came in the flesh <laughs> and came to me in my flesh. And so, uh, I think I had a, a little bit of a perverted understanding of what that meant. And so, uh, so I, you know, cut my hair and got myself a three piece suit and, and basically what they meant was for me to become like a white person. Mm-hmm. And it just, I, I tried that for five, six years, and it just didn't seem to fit well. And uh, that was just part of this discovery process. Um, and, and then to realize that, you know, eventually God made me who I am. You know, I'm a mixed blood Cherokee white person who uh, has uh, a proud heritage and um, have now, you know, m- more than half of my life in Indian country. So, um, yeah, involved in yeah. ministry in lots of different ways. So. Yeah, you have been. Um, one of the things you and your wife, Edith, started Elohe Indigenous Center for Earth and Justice. How did that come to be? Yeah. So 
Elahe Center for Earth Justice and Elahe Farm and Seeds is the current rendition of um, our our outreach, if you will, our organization. Um, we started in, I was pastoring a native church um, in a very, I guess people call it cultural contextual way in uh, Nevada. And our church was made largely of, um, of native people who uh, came from a traditional background, not a tr- church background, but a more native traditional background. And, and people, uh, that hadn't been really done uh, among mission. And so um, people were trying to find out, like, well, what is, what are you doing? You know, what's the formula? And I'm like, there's no formula. Just, you know, come and visit us and you can find out, you know. And then we started getting kind of calls from people to come and speak and, uh, you know, how that goes. So um, eventually we went halftime at the church and halftime with our uh, Eagles Wings Ministries, it was called at that time. And, uh, and then after a year, we saw that that wasn't going to be possible. And then we finally uh, branched off for this whole vision of Elahe, which basically we looked after years of serving our indigenous people in lots of different ways. I mean, everything you can think of from, you know, houseless uh, uh, ministry to um, uh, food closets to et cetera, et cetera, and uh, discipling programs, all these things. And... Um, uh, what happened was that uh, we just said that, you know, the, the government nor the church has done a, a good job at all in, in any denomination with our Native people. And uh, we know how to create a new model that would empower our people and give us agency as opposed to disempower, continue the sort of colonial baggage and legacy that we were given and so um, ever since then, our plight has been to both decolonize and indigenize. And uh, so, and then we found out sort of along the way also that, you know, if we're going to heal, we all have to heal together. And so uh, we, we sort of um, have both sides. So we're, we deal with indigenous people and we deal with non-indigenous people or, um, you know, non-Indians. And, uh, and our whole goal is to decolonize and indigenize. And we, we started that after four years of leaving um, the pastor in Nevada, Carson City, Nevada. We began in Jessamon County there. And uh-huh. uh, while I was getting my Ph.D., and me and a couple other uh, Native folks, Richard Twist uh, was there, uh, Terry LeBlanc, Ray Aldred. We were all uh, in a sort of a, I guess, unintentional cohort that uh, became intentional and uh, helped each other through uh, our Asbury experience um, uh, came out and said, you know, we want to now create something that's more native friendly. And so we created the uh, uh, North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies, which is called NATES. And then we eventually started a program um, uh, out of uh, uh, the seminary where I I'm in my last semester before I retire. Uh, oh, wow. Is, Congratulations. Yes, at uh, Portland Seminary and part of George Fox University. But, um, but yeah, we eventually lost. We had 50 acres there in Jessamine County in Nicholasville. We lost that due to um, um, violent pressure from a white supremacist uh, paramilitary type group. Uh, just as I was finishing up at Asbury, 
And uh, we eventually uh, had to sell and move uh, to keep anybody from being killed. And, uh, uh, and that's how I ended up in Oregon. And then uh, we had uh, one small uh, sort of uh, rendition of Ala Hay for seven years. And it was only a three-acre place with some very restrictive zoning. And then two and a half years ago, uh, Edith and I moved in the middle of COVID uh, to this 10 acres and uh, began to build our, our third farm from scratch, by the way. Okay. Uh, yeah, we got it right the third time. We figured out how to do it right. <laughs> and, uh, and so now we're here and we're starting to have our schools again. Uh, we're starting to have groups come in. And uh, yeah, so uh, the vision is uh, just just completing now, finally, after I think 24 years. Oh, wow. Wow. So we'll link to your website in the show notes, but could you tell us about a couple of events or things that people could join if they're interested, either virtually or if some of them live close, you know, out in Oregon? Yeah. So, well, if they live close, um, we have uh, the last Saturday of every month, we have a volunteer work day out here on the farm. Um, we also have uh, schools, uh, so uh, extended weekend schools, but right now we're limited. We don't have a building. We're actually going to raise funds for a building this fall, but uh, um, so that we can have things, you know, all throughout the whole year. But right now it's only too hot in the summer and too rainy in the winter. And so we only have this sort of small window to have in-person teaching, but we've had some. Uh, we've got one coming up this weekend. Um and uh, my wife also is a part of a group with another Native woman, and they do. They had a retreat here not too long ago, a school, if you will, called uh, "Decolonizing with Badass Indigenous Grandmas," and, uh, <laughs> and that's it. gone over real well. And then I have uh, some online cohorts that I do through the uh, winter time, and and uh, until we get our building finished. Um, uh, then once we do that, we'll be having like once a month extended weekends here. Uh, yeah. So very nice. Very nice. You said that one of the goals of Elohe is to decolonize and indigenize. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? I guess well, maybe a better question is, I mean, you can pick if it's a better question or not, that's up to you, but um, how do we, what can we learn from indigenous wisdom? I think might be a better way. Um, maybe a better way of asking that. Yeah. Well, I started out as a, a commissioned missionary and uh, it wasn't long before I realized in the native community that, um, uh, that I was actually a, uh, I guess you'd say a double agent that the church actually had more to learn from native people than native people had to learn from the church because the values that have sustained our people in, uh, for so long for, you know, time immemorial. I'm sure they developed over time with the land, but uh, those values are very much the values that Jesus taught. And uh, oftentimes Native people are more consistent with those than the church. Uh, in fact, I would say that the church, because of the Platonic dualism that's tied up in and baked in the bread, if you will, of, of theology and ecology and economics and education and the penal system and everything else, that uh, it's very much uh, fragmented. And uh, whereas indigenous way of thinking, it's more holistic. Um, so this, this idea of platonic dualism um, with that being the sort of um, 
the 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 foundational fallacy of the Western worldview, where you um, you understand the uh, ethereal world or that which is spiritual or that which is of the mind, uh, and you privilege that above the material world. Um, and so that's very much a Western uh, way of doing things, a Western modality. Um, when you do that, all kinds of weird things arise. Um, you, you start thinking like the mind is better than the body. The, the spirit is better than the earth. Um, yeah. You start ranking things in hierarchies, and that's where you get all your anthropocentrism, thinking humans are above nature rather than just part of nature, thinking uh, that uh, men are above women uh, instead of just being equal, um, you know, uh, that a, a one race is more superior than another race. And so all of those kinds of things stem out of this foundational fallacy of Platonic dualism. Well, in Native America, um, we've been affected by that slightly, but especially those traditional folks, um, they don't think that way. They think of, you know, in a more holistic way. And so what I'm saying is that the church has fallen prey to that over these years. And, uh, and then um, it sort of doubled down at the time of the Reformation and the time of the, uh, uh, the Enlightenment. Um, and so it, it was given a sort of a recharge that was following the... Uh, um, the Renaissance, which was the revitalization of all Greek thinking, Greek culture, Greek art, mm -hmm. Greek, you know, architecture, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so we are captive to that. So how do you decolonize from that? Well, first of all, you have to hear a story differently, right, than the ones oh, you've been told. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. you have to hear from people who are different, people who understand differently. And that's often the role of indigenous people is to help. Uh, non-Indigenous people, Western thinkers, to change the way that they think, to convert them to a different worldview, um, mm -hmm. which, uh, and worldviews are not immutable. They used to, you know, I, I mean, I learned, and one of the things I learned at Asbury is that, uh, you know, anthropologists used to think that worldview is Im immutable, but you can actually learn other worldviews. You can learn to, to think uh, in a different way. And so, that's sort of the gift that we have as indigenous people to help um, non-indigenous people decolonize, shed that, uh, that old uh, platonic dualistic worldview and start to see reality in whole again, which is what Jesus taught. Jesus was not affected by the Enlightenment. Uh, apparently, he wasn't affected by uh, the dualism that would have been present in his day. Uh, maybe his uh, upbringing in Nazareth protected him from that. I don't know. But he was, a, I think, a perfect example of a decolonized mind. And, and he understood that reality. He said, you know, hey, don't swear by heaven because that's God's throne. And don't swear by the earth because that's God's footstool. In other words, it's all sacred, right? The material, the ethereal, everything. And so, um, so I think indigenous people uh, can get the church back on track to a way of thinking closer to what Jesus thought. Yeah. How does our colonial view sometimes, or maybe you would say most of the time, keep us from seeing the truth of Scripture? Oh, well, you know, we like to think that we, we all come to Scripture, right, unbiased, <laughs> but yes. we bring our baggage with us, right? And so That's part of that baggage is that worldview that wants to separate, that wants to create hierarchies. And so, you know, it, it's sort of doomed from the beginning. 
So uh, one of the things that someone said to me a long time ago was, you know, when you when you read these stories, you know, first of all, realize they are stories. You know, the ninety uh, percent of scripture is in story, story form. That's true. Yeah. And so, uh, if you don't understand story, then you probably are coming with some kind of a weird outside agenda, right? But indigenous people understand story, and other people from other countries and places around the world understand story differently than Western people. Western people, the first thing they want to know is like, did this happen? Like, what are the f- real facts? Is this true? Whereas uh, an indigenous way of understanding is like, what's the truth in this story? What is the storyteller wanting me to learn? And that's how these stories were written. I don't think uh, even all the way down to uh, into the New Testament, especially Jesus, never intended for these stories to be um, uh, interpreted the way that the West has interpreted them. And so, um, yeah, there's that's the first thing is to to understand that you know these are stories. And and then and someone said to me, you need to understand them. Look at them through your indigenous eyes. This is when I was struggling with my identity, and I was like, "What does that mean?" You know, and uh, and so I, I started thinking more, like, "Okay, if I, what about the more community values, um, less individualistic? What does that mean? You know, what is what is how do I apply that to these stories? Um, what about generosity? You know, this is all the things that Jesus taught. If I start using, in other words, Jesus." Uh, who, who, again, very similar, not, you know, completely, but very similar to indigenous values, use his values to interpret these things, um, then, uh, then I'm going to maybe have a more correct view of what they are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I think I became a, a red letter Christian before the red letter Christians existed. <laughs> um, yeah. And so if, yeah. it, if, it, if, it, if I didn't understand the story in light of the eyes and the values and the stories of Jesus, then there was something wrong with that story, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad you, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm glad you brought up story because one of the things among many I found fascinating about you that I've never heard anyone else do is that you didn't read the Bible for two years, but instead <laughs> had it read to you. And so I'm like, that is like a unique way, like a more original way to receive scripture. I mean, most of us listening are all blessed to have copies of scripture, but to hear it orally for two years, like what was that like for you? And what did you learn? And I'm assuming it changed you a little bit. So how did that experience change you? Yeah. So, so from 2004 to 2006, which was primarily my time at Asbury, um, and, uh, you know, I guess the, the cat's out of the bag now, my professors are going to know, but, uh, uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't read scripture once I decided that I, what I wanted to do was hear orally. Um, so I'm not breaking it. I'm hearing the st- more like a story rather than mm-hmm. looking and seeing verse 13, verse 14, verse, you know, and, uh, and it began to make a lot more sense to me that way. When I heard the story and I listened to the story and I said, what's the story really about here? Um, who are the characters? Who can I relate to? What, what, what's the storyteller trying to tell me? And it was just much easier uh, through listening rather than uh, reading. And uh, yeah, I, that, that it definitely helped inform my perspective. Yeah. 
For sure. I did that. I mostly listened to it for a year. I did the Bible in a year and I had this app that read it to me. And that was partly, um, I don't know if this is the best thing, but partly so I could be like doing other things while I was listening. So I I think it would have been better if I would have sat still and like actually received it more. But I really appreciated like that experience and being able to, to receive it in that way as well. Um, talking about uh, being indigenous to place, uh, you have said that we're, we're all indigenous to somewhere. I think this was in Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. We're all indigenous to somewhere. We're all from somewhere. We can all become rooted in the land that sustains us. Um, how do we find, how do we reconnect with our own um, indigenous because I'm not indigenous. I'm indigenous to Kentucky now, but my people, you know, a long time ago are not. How do we reconnect with that? Yeah, and it's a, it's a really good question. So I, I encourage people who are uh, reading Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth, um, and these 100 meditations to do not skip the introduction because the introduction is really where I establish the connection. And uh, and so I talk about various ways that and that we are all indigenous from somewhere, and I, I I make that point in several ways, and and I do distinguish between sort of the, the small letter I indigenous and capital I, which would be the host people of that land who have been here for well I would say minimally most uh, twelve to fourteen thousand years. Um, you know, they're actually anthropologists and sociologists now who have been doing research and are more and more saying, you know, uh, perhaps we've been here, you know, uh, you know, much, much longer than that. Uh, some would even say uh, 200,000 years. Um, but I think 28,000 is the sort of oldest uh, popular um, in the uh, Channel Islands right now, popular uh, version of people who were inhabiting that land. But anyway, regardless, it's been a while, right? And, yes. uh, and so uh, if we are people who have been here for so long, then I think we earn the right to have that capital I indigenous, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. everybody's indigenous from somewhere. I mean, we all began as people who understood how to live with the land regardless of where you're from. If you didn't, you probably wouldn't have survived, right? Your people wouldn't have survived. And so, so there's that. It's like, well, what in a sense that, you know, do I need to do to reclaim my own indigeneity? And some people, um, you know, the first thing I do is to, to find out like, what are the indigenous people of your land doing now, uh, you know, culturally, politically, what are they about? You know, investigate that, educate yourself, understand the history, all of that, um, which will shed light, hopefully, on some of the values and some of the experiences that you might have on that land. Uh, and it's difficult. You know, I'm not saying it's not difficult because we are a very mobile society, right? I mean, it's just like we're everywhere. That's what colonialism does is it sort of relocates people. And um, 
But also, uh, you know, what about your own, you know, ethnicity, indigeneity, ancestry? Mm -hmm. Sometimes a lot of people, you know, I hear people talk about, oh, it's my Irish calling. My Celtic roots are calling. And I, you know, I feel a sense to to participate in that. And so they educate themselves about that more and more or uh, or they sort of like get on the land and just sort of let nature speak to them and and figure out, like, you know, how do I connect and how do I relate? And if you can do that. Mm With a group of people, even better, because um, that's what it means to be indigenous, not to be individual, uh, individually indigenous, but to be indigenous mm-hmm. with a group. And so, you know, I encourage people to uh, to chase their ancestry, to get with like-minded people, to have ceremony from their own ancestry or create their own, um, of course, not to misappropriate native culture, right, without permission, um, uh, and, but it's important to also, uh, uh, not just understand like, okay, this is my experience on this particular land, but there are people who have been here so much longer and I have things to learn from them. So yes, there's a lot of absolutely. different ways and there's probably ways I haven't thought about to become indigenous to the land, but that's what we need to reconnect. We need to sort of rediscover our own indigeneity. Yeah. How does doing that restore our relationship with not only other humans, but also with creation. Yeah. So, so we, um, we, we like to understand ourselves apart from nature. Um, but we are part of nature and we are related to nature. We have a reciprocal relationship with everything in creation. So I call this the whole community of creation. Um, I wrote a book when I came out of Asbury called Shalom and the community of creation so that people can understand, you know, um, that we are a part of it and that God created it all and that um, each has a different role to play, even down to the, you know, the mosquito that bit me on the elbow the other day. You know, I, I got to realize that mosquito has a role to play too somehow. Don't know what it is, but. Uh, right. <laughs> so, um, and, and so uh, what do we do uh, when we find ourselves in this segmented, isolated, uh, anthropocentric worldview, we have to begin to get out of that. And we have to hang with people who don't see the world in that way um, and begin to uh, change our views about uh, these things. And, and when we do, our theologies change, uh, our politics change. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, you look and you see, you know, people who are involved in, you know, uh, racial justice and people who are involved in, um, earth justice and, you know, all of these different things, but they're all the same thing. They're all, uh, and I talk about, you know, Jesus teaching this shalom value, right? This shalom life way. This is what Jesus came to restore was this old, what I call shalom Sabbath jubilee construct. And, um, and in these our, our job then is to set the world right. We are unique as human beings, and this is the sort of the unique part of us. We are unique in that we're the only ones sort of qualified to keep things in balance and to keep things in harmony, to keep to bring about shalom and to repair this broken and fragmented world. And so that's our job, whether it's doing earth justice or racial justice or whatever it is, um, we're all about doing the same thing, which is what Jesus taught, which is to uh, repair the breach, if you will, to mm-hmm. to make things whole again. And of course, part of that is seen with a holistic worldview. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You were talking about kind of the, a little bit of the disconnect um, just now and then earlier in the podcast, but oftentimes 
we're disconnected. We don't see, we see God as separate from being creator a little bit sometimes. And I think there's, there's a difference in that, as you point out. What does it mean for us to see Jesus, not just as Savior, but also as our creator? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing we do is we go to Scripture, right? So there's five places in Scripture where Jesus is exclusively named as having what we would theologically say the efficacy of creation, right? And so John 1 is, uh, you know, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, I think Colossians, I mean, uh, yeah, Colossians 1 and 2, and uh, and then I think it's 1 Corinthians 9, 7. I can't remember exactly the, that verse, but they all, let's just take John 1. It's very emphatic, and all of these things are written in sort of a, a mnemonic devices. They are sort of poetry or song, or we're not sure what they were, but they were made for people to remember these things. So obviously they were important. And so what did they do with Jesus? How did they they place him in this whole order of creation? And that what they said was like in uh, John 1, uh, he made he being Jesus, he made everything that was made, and without him nothing was made that was made. Very emphatic, very poetic, very mnemonic, so that we can remember that it is Jesus who had the efficacy of creation. And so the West has no, because the West has erred by creating a sort of uh, redemption salvation narrative without all the rest of Jesus, right? So they go to the cross without the incarnation, without the life and ministry of Jesus and the way he lived his life, without his own theology as he taught and, and, and preached. And, and it becomes a, a simple message of the cross and redemption. Um, that, so there's no place in Western theology for Jesus as creator. Um, so what does that mean if Jesus is creator? He creates this good world. He expects us to maintain it and repair it and keep it in balance and in harmony. And then he dies for it, you know? So that means something very much, it's a much wider theology, if you will. It's a much bigger view of who God is. But we like to, you know, again, there's that hierarchy and dualism, the God, you know, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm a Trinitarian, not for the reasons probably a lot of other people are, but I'm a Trinitarian um, because I believe that that all of nature uh, reflects unity and diversity. So God has to be unity uh, and diverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, so we, we, we have trouble with that. Uh, uh, Jesus is creator as, uh, um, but I think when people begin to understand that, um, and, and sort of that becomes a part of uh, their theological thinking, it will mean something different with everything that they think about theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. One question I wanted to ask you, I meant to ask it a little bit earlier, but as we're exploring indigenous theology and our own in- indigeneity, how do we stay true to our own story even as we're learning about this new way of thinking? Or is that even the correct way to be looking at it? Like that we need to stay true to like our story. Well, I don't know what you mean by our story, but I think if, if you are exploring your indigeneity, that is your story. Okay. Yeah. I think it meant just, I think, I think I was asking about like not misappropriating like native American history because that is obviously not my history and maybe not the history of people listening, but like, how do I stay true to me and who I am, 
even as I learn about this new way of thinking. Yeah. So, well, it's, it's good to know native people and ask them. Uh, but uh, besides yeah. that, I think, uh, you know, you just know like, Hey, this comes through my bloodline and that doesn't, you know, this comes through my, uh, cultural experience and that doesn't. And so it's sort of like, until I'm given permission to participate in that, then I don't have the right to do it. Oh, I see. That makes sense. So you've written, um, I don't, let's see several books at this point. You just released a mission and a cultural other, a closer, closer look on September 1st. So I've written nine uh, books. Nine <laughs> books. Okay. And, and uh, three came out this year in 2022. Yes. 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 So I'm guessing maybe those are some of the results of the pandemic a little bit and having yes. more time. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> yeah. that and starting um, a new firm uh, at the same yeah. time. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so your books are kind of a bit of a personal journey for you as well? Is that a fair assessment? Well, I think, yeah, everybody writes and everybody speaks and preaches autobiographically in some ways. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, you know, yeah. they, they reflect my thinking at the time and my identity at the time. Yeah. yeah. So you did this a little bit in our pre-podcast conversation, but I think it would be good for our listeners too. Would you walk us through each of your books and kind of tell us a little bit about them? Yeah. So you mean the ones written this year? Yeah, this year is fine. If you want to go back further than that. Yeah, so I, I wrote a couple books that were self-published. And then uh, uh, there's my doctoral dissertation, which is all about this Harmony Way and mm -hmm. across Native America. Um, uh, but I think uh, I first wrote a book in uh, um, in around 2000 uh, on uh, diversity uh, and living in color, embracing God's passion for ethnic diversity, where I wanted people to understand the nature of God is diverse. Uh, then coming out of Asbury, I wrote um, Shalom in the Community of Creation, an indigenous vision to try and sort of show where uh, our indigenous people sort of line up with our values with Jesus. And a lot of that was based on my research that I did in my dissertation. Um, and then uh, I wrote a book with my podcast partner and I was a uh, his mentor uh, during his seminary years, Bo Sanders, we wrote a book called Decolonizing Evangelicalism, an 1159 conversation. And, um, and so we wanted to look, sort of like with all that was happening with evangelicalism, we wanted to sort of put in some words and some thoughts and talk about some things. And, and we didn't, you know, a lot of what we talk about is critical race theory and some of these things w way before it became political hot buttons, right? So mm -hmm. that was in 2020, I think. And then in 2022, uh, so I've written three books this year. The first mm -hmm. one uh, was called Becoming Rooted, um, mm -hmm. uh, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. And it's 100 short meditations and an action point after each one. And that's doing real well. And I'm glad to see people, I've gotten to see a lot of people have shared their experience and are telling me it's working for them. So I'm really happy about that. And then in April, uh, a, a book, uh, I did the, something called the Hayward Lectures up in um, Nova Scotia. And, um, and then Baker Academic wanted me to do a book based on those lectures. And so that book is called uh, Indigenous Theology and the Western Worldview, A Decolonial Approach to Christian Doctrine. And that's where I really lay out this whole idea of the difference between indigenous worldview and um, the Western worldview and, and how I would, I would really say the Western worldview is antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. Oh, 
Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that, and I laid that out in that book. And then finally, this book that just came out uh, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. Mission and the Cultural Other, A Closer Look. And uh, this is a book where uh, I think after uh, getting uh, be, being a missionary, a commissioned missionary, being a flaming evangelist, being a pastor for seven years, uh, being a pastor to pastors, um, uh, being a missiologist and a professor, uh, that sort of it all comes down to here's what I had to say, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and and so we have to realize in the West that the missionary project uh, is is tied directly into the Western worldview, and particularly coming out of empire, tied directly to white supremacy. And so it's very paternalistic. It's very um, sort of white uh, Western, even though people wouldn't say it's, it's you know, and, and I'm not condemning all missionaries by any means, but what I'm saying is its foundations, its DNA it's baked in the bread, as we talked about earlier, is this sort of uh, supremacist view that like we have all the answers and you have nothing. And again, it's it's sort of the subject object. It's treating the people involved in mission as objects, as opposed to um, partners, uh, I would say, co-laborers who have things to teach each other. And so I developed these 10 missiological principles and, uh, uh, and and that we need to to go in, and it, it, it requires a great deal of humility. But then I, I, I spent about six chapters doing that, and then I go into, like, well, then what was the real mission of Jesus? Uh, and, and if we can get that right, maybe we can get mission right. And so uh, I spend the rest of the time talking about uh, uh, that and, and how we might sort of do it differently. So Yeah. Yeah, well, we will definitely link all of those in our show notes so that people can pick up a copy if they would like to do that. Thank you for walking us through those. Yeah, thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I also want to talk about is, um, from what I've learned about you, there is no gap for you between what you believe and what you do. Um and so you have said Jesus didn't really care what you believed. He cared about what you do. Could you unpack that for us a little bit? And then with saying that, I'm curious about how and why you came to Asbury. Oh, okay. So first part, um, and you might have to remind me the second because I'm getting oh, yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. So, no, uh, no, uh, I did what they told us not to do, and I asked two questions <laughs> at the same time. It's okay. Yeah, you have to watch that with old people. We, we lose track sometimes. We get caught up in the first story. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I think um, Jesus said it better than I could say it. He said, you know, and, and I like this story because I'm a farmer and I have two mm-hmm. sons and I have two daughters and two sons. I have six grandkids, but but my two sons uh, grew up mostly on the farm. And uh, Jesus tells a story about, uh, you know, a farmer who had two sons. He's talking to the Pharisees and, mm-hmm. and he says, you know, that that first son. Uh, I, I, and I might get the order mixed up because I haven't looked at the story in a while, but it just came to me that the first son, uh, says, you know, oh yeah, I'll go, you know, the farmer says to his son, go work in the field. And he's like, okay, I'll go work in the field. But he never went. And the second Mm -hmm. son, he says, go work in the field. And he's like, I don't want to work in the field. Why do I always got to work in the field? You know, uh, you should have my brother working in the field. I'm not going to work in the field, but then he ends up going. Right. And then he asked the Pharisees, well, who was justified? Who was righteous? It was the one one who did it, 
not the yeah. one who had the best intent or the best doctrine or the best thinking. It was the one who actually fulfilled uh, Jesus, you know, commands and values and, and life and ministry. And so I don't think God cares a lick about our doctrine. Mm-hmm. I think he only cares, God only cares about what we do and what we do for each other and what we do for the community of creation and what we do to set the world back in balance. Um, mm-hmm. And we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and through our particular faith. Yeah. Yeah. So in thinking that, like, how did you, this is, was the second part of the question. (laughs) How and why did you come to Asbury? Because it, you know, like doctrine does inform beliefs, you know, in, in some way, you know. Well, I I would like to think that is true, but apparently if you look at Christian history and you see things like the Crusades and, you know, uh, genocide on Native Americans and, you know, a lot of other things that I think correct doctrine doesn't really, you know, uh, I I mean, I'm sure there's a reciprocal relationship between what you believe and what you do, but I think what you do informs what you believe more than anything. Or at least with Americans in the Western worldview, it's like we we did this thing, you know, we had to do this thing that wasn't quite right, but here's the justification for it. Uh-huh, and that's uh-huh. that's different than how indigenous people think. Indigenous people might do something that they thought was not quite right and then just say it wasn't right. Oh. Oh. They call it <laughs> they call it out. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it's a more honest approach, I think, um, in, uh, traditionally. And, you know, we actually create doctrines that, you know, uh, and we create theologies that excuse things that aren't right. Um, and instead so of just saying, no, I was wrong, you know, this was wrong thinking, this was a wrong way to do things. And so as a result, the, uh, the Western worldview is all about beliefs and very little about what you do. We're supposed there's no separation between what you do and what you believe in indigenous value. If you ask an indigenous elder, what do you believe? He'll tell you what he does or what she does. Oh, that. Wow. That's a, as you've been saying, that's a whole new way of looking at things. Yeah. And I kind of show that in some charts in uh, uh, Shalom and the Community of Creation. I've got that started. That's where I start thinking about these worldview things. And and Asbury was a, a big part of that. So, yeah. so, so why come to Asbury. Um, mm-hmm. So we were doing, uh, we, we were actually, I was going around speaking and things like this and, and looking for a place to start our school uh, and community and, you know, Alehe, basically the whole vision mm-hmm. uh, farm, et cetera. And, um, and, and uh, I was asked to come speak at Asbury. And while at Asbury, uh, and then we also asked two of my friends, Ray Aldred and Terry LeBlanc. And so we ended up spending a week there doing chapels and doing courses and all these kinds of things. And, and then at the end of our time, um, the people at Asbury extended an invitation to us. They said, we, they actually said, we think you're doing some of the best missiology in the world and we want to get behind it. And uh, what can we do? And so my response was, well, I'm, I'm looking to build a school um, and you're on Cherokee land anyway. So why don't you just give me like five acres? So I can start my school. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they, they didn't blink. Uh, they said, OK, uh, we'll look into that. And then uh, the, but they came back eventually and said, we can't do that. We discussed it. But what we can do 
is offer uh, scholarships to uh, the, there were actually going to be four of us, um, to the four of you. Um, and wow. so, you know, we had to go through the, you know, I mean, I had already had a master's degree in um, a, a master of divinity. And so I just had to take the uh, GRE, I guess, or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I passed. Uh, and uh, and so we qualified and, uh, and then we were, uh, we started this cohort together, if you will. And, mm-hmm. um, and while we were there, we had a wonderful experience. I mean, I had incredible mm-hmm. professors and I had, you know, people who, um, who allowed me to challenge them and allowed us to challenge them. Uh, so they would, for example, you know, give us like books, all white authors. And we were like, why don't we have any native authors here? Why don't we have any mm-hmm. people of color here? Well, we want to, we want to be able to read, uh, um, people who, are outside of the train of thought that Western theologians have come out of. And so they would say, okay, well, let's substitute this book for this book. And, you know, and, um, and I, I think one of the highest honors uh, I received anyway, when I graduated was that uh, I had my mentors, my, my professors who were my dissertation coaches. Uh, so that would have been uh, Mike Rinkovich um, and, uh, uh, Eunice Irwin and uh, uh, Russell, and um, and and they said to me, they took me out for a steak dinner, and uh, after I passed my uh, my doctoral dissertation, and uh, and they said, you know, I, I want you to hear this, you guys have been missionaries to us. Mm-hmm. We we have changed a lot of our thinking and, and converted, um, you know, uh, and uh, we have seen some great things come. Howard Snyder produced uh, a number of good things. Um, one of us is like Pocahontas and Jesus or something. I forget the name of it exactly. I did the for the forward to it, but, um, and, uh, but Howard, uh, with another person came out with this incredible book called salvation is creation healed, mm. which gets right to the heart of native theology really. And so, um, so we were so happy, and I use that in a lot of my theology courses. I I uh, require that book, um, and so there's always this sort of give and play between us and the professors, um, and I think it also influenced a lot of the students who were there, um, mm-hmm. who began to speak out, um, who normally might not, uh, and so yeah, it was a very good learning experience and uh, one that I would say was reciprocal, um, and. Uh, um, at first I turned it down, you know, I mean, the first year it was offered, I said, no. Really? And yeah, because I, I'm, I'm about, you know, building this place, but they said, well, what if we helped you, you know? And so, uh, so we, the second year, my, it was offered, my wife was with me when they offered it. And, uh, and I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I've got to build our school and Ayla Hay and stay true to that vision. And, and Edith said, well, you need to pray about it. And I said, well, I prayed about it. She <laughs> said, well, you prayed about it last year. Now you need to pray about it this year. <laughs> and after some thought and prayer, you know, we said, okay, let's, let's do it. And one of the motivators was really my wife who said, because I, I wasn't interested in really doing a, more education. Mm-hmm. But uh, she said, you know, for a Native person to have a Ph.D., it's going to allow you to go to places where none of the rest of us will ever be able to go. You'll get invited to speak. You'll get invited to be a part of things and have influence on behalf of our native people that, uh, that, that 
you would never get without this. And so, and I'm, she was a hundred percent right. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a hundred percent true as hat. That's, that's the way it's happened. So, um, so she was wiser than me, which is not <laughs> unusual, uh, for, uh, uh, women to be wiser than men. I think that's pretty common, but, uh, uh, yeah. So I'm thankful to her and I'm thankful to Asbury as well. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how has your education here, uh, equips you to continue your work maybe in some new ways? Yeah. So, you know, uh, when we lost our property there in, in, uh, Nicholasville in Jessamyn County, um, I, I was able to come out and I got a job first, a uh, couple years as a halftime adjunct at George Fox, um, at the seminary and then three quarter time. And eventually I became a, a tenured professor and, you know, I think, uh, uh, last year, I won the uh, you know graduate yes. research and scholar of the year award, and my wife and I have been granted the state of Oregon uh, last year with the ecumenist of the year. And we work with people from different faiths, doing a lot of different things, and and uh, yeah, some of my books and you know etc. So it's been uh, it's been a very uh, you know an open door. Uh, so yeah. yeah, 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 that's wonderful. You mentioned it earlier, but one of the final questions I want to ask you is talking about the Western worldview kind of being baked in the bread. Um, and you've talked about, um, so listening to you today and reading your books to repair has made me kind of realize that in my own life, that some things that I've always thought were true have just been baked in the bread. How do we, like, where do we go from here, I guess, is as I'm stammering around this question, where do we go from here? Once we realize some things have been baked in the bread, what do we do now? Well, I think being open is a big thing, right? I mean, it's, it's hard for us when we, when we are sure we have all the answers and that's what church sort of does. You know, that's part of the dysfunction of the church is to say, you know, uh, only ask the right questions because we have all the answers to those questions. But if you start asking the wrong questions, we don't know what's going to happen. And so, but yet one of the great names for, for creator in Native America is great mystery. Yeah, we don't know, you know, and, and Jesus described this wonderful when he said, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is like the wind. It blows here and there and everywhere, and you don't know which direction it's coming or going. And And as a pastor, that's when I really realized, you know, uh, we can follow the spirit or we can take control of the situation. But if we do, the spirit's going to leave. Mm. And, and so we're going to end up on a path that maybe we don't want to. So um, remind me of that question one more time. Uh, I, I lost track. Oh, no. Where do we go from here? Like we realize oh, things okay. have been kind of baked so in the bread. Yeah think, yeah. think about Jesus. He's always sitting down with diverse people. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he's spending time with Gentiles. He's spending time with women. Um, uh, he's spending time uh, with Pharisees. He's spending time with tax gatherers and the Amharas, the untouched, you know, all of those people. Jesus wasn't just teaching when he was there. His life experience didn't hold the same experience as everybody else. He was listening and he was learning and he was applying what he knew to them. Well, if Jesus can do that, we surely should be able to do that, right? Uh-huh. I mean, we yeah. should be able to be open enough to realize we need to be around diverse people, people with different experiences, diff- different worldviews, so that we can continue to 
to take what we know to be true and apply it and then find out what is more also true. And so, um, so that openness is, is really the first step is just saying, I don't, it's in its humility is I just don't have all the answers. I need to be a lifelong learner. You know, one day, maybe I'll know all the answers. I actually don't think we will, but um, one day (laughs) I think that's what what being existence is, is, is learning. And so uh, if we're an open learner and we continue to just be good students, you know, all of our, our life, or I call, I don't call my students students. I call them co-learners. So yes. collaborative learners, they're, they're, we're all learning together. And mm-hmm. uh, if we can do that, um, you know, maybe we'll get there. So, yeah. And yeah. it's the journey, right? I mean, it's, and, and so it's this, this, all these conversions. Yes, there's an initial conversion, right? But there's continuous conversion after that, con- continually converting to truth that we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, That's really good. That's really good. Well, our conversation has given me personally so much to think about, and I'm really grateful for your time and the work that you are doing in the world. It has really started to change me, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. I have one question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, but before I do that, is there anything else you'd like to mention that I didn't know to ask you? No, I, you know, it was great. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, the last question that we ask everyone is because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Yeah. Well, um, I, I don't want this to sound trite because it's sort of like part of my book and everything. But if I don't spend time outside, I get uh, weird, right? Uh, if I don't spend time in creation and appreciating and watching the hummingbirds and watching the ladybugs and watching, you know, the picking my corn or, you know, uh, whatever it is uh, doing, I sometimes deer come in, to our front and we sit and watch them. And, and, uh, like, uh, and if I don't, uh, expose myself to the wonders of creation, you know, I, one time I had this trip and, and then the same trip I saw Grand Canyon um, the Atlantic Ocean and Niagara Falls. And it was like, these things are just so much to take in. It's wonderment. Yeah. And it and it shows me, uh, it's just one way of showing me how big God is and how vast uh, everything is. And then how I get to be a part of it all, you know, which is this, you know, I'm just this little speck, you know, but I get to be a part <laughs> of all this. And so um, I think that's the, the most um sort of precious practice to me is to uh, just to be able to be out outdoors and in creation. Yeah, that's beautiful. Dr. Woodley, thank you so very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Heidi. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Woodley. I don't know about y'all, but this conversation is changing my life, and I hope it's making you think about things that you may never have thought about previously. If you know Dr. Woodley, be sure to thank him ever so much for being part of today's episode. And as always, you can follow Asbury Seminary in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.